Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Thank you very much, everybody. So I'm going to be signing a national emergency. Who knows what that means, because walls don't work. Everybody knows that. Nancy knows it. They all know it. It's all a big lie. It's a big con game. I didn't need to do this. It's wrong. It's just a lie. It's all a lie. And we will have a national emergency. And we will then be sued. And they will sue us in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, even though it shouldn't be there. And we will possibly get a ruling. the hell did that come from? Trump is crazy. That's the story. Uh, Sean Hannity has been a terrific, terrific president. So I like him a lot and he likes me a lot. Enjoy your life. And thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 83 of Intercepted. We seek a peaceful transition of power, but all options are open. The Trump administration, with the backing of both the Republican and Democratic political establishments, is moving forward with its campaign for regime change in Venezuela. Or you can choose the second path, continuing to support Maduro. If you choose this path, you will find no safe harbor, No easy exit and no way out. You will lose everything. The Trump administration has set a deadline of February 23rd for Nicolas Maduro to bow down to the U.S. or face unknown consequences. We don't know what, but the administration says that all options are on the table, a clear military threat. The U.S. military, meanwhile, has been landing planes on the Colombian border with Venezuela using the cover of humanitarian aid shipments. And U.S. political leaders continue to blatantly lie about the crisis in Venezuela. They are lying about Maduro's government blocking a bridge. That bridge has never been functional. It's never been opened. It's never been in use. That is just pure propaganda. In fact, my colleague Josh Bagley did a satellite imagery analysis of that bridge on the Venezuela-Colombia border that shows that the bridge has never been used from 2014 until now. No cars, no trucks, nothing. There is a fully functioning bridge nearby, and that one remains open, 
but the U.S. hasn't even bothered to apply for permission to cross that bridge. They are promoting the image of a bridge that has never been opened and then claiming it's evidence that Maduro is blocking aid. No. The issue here is that the U.S. is not actually attempting to aid the Venezuelan people. They are using their suffering as a prop in a campaign to overthrow the Maduro government. Also, the U.S. declared value of its so-called aid. It's not even equal to a couple of days worth of losses in oil revenue that the U.S. sanctions have caused Venezuela. This is a cynical ploy to starve and harass Venezuelans into rising up against Maduro. And this offering of crumbs to Venezuela, it's a psychological operation. It's a political maneuver. If the U.S. really wanted to aid the Venezuelan people, they would lift the sanctions. They would coordinate with international aid agencies and the U.N. and the Maduro government to deliver goods. This isn't about humanitarian aid. This is a provocation aimed at bolstering the coup government of Juan Guaido. And Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi are lying about the actual intent of this so-called aid. The United Nations, the International Committee of the Red Cross, both of them have said this isn't actually humanitarian aid because it's being politicized. And both have declined to participate in what amounts to a U.S. propaganda stunt. Here is Venezuelan Foreign Minister Jorge Ariaza speaking last week at the United Nations. The cost of this blockade is over $30 billion. And they are sending this so-called humanitarian aid for $20 million. So what is this? I'm choking you, I'm killing you, and then I'm giving you a cookie. So that's a show. And they have said it. Let's step back and just look at this simple fact. Okay, Donald Trump declared his fake national emergency in order to try to push through his insane wall project. At the same time, the U.S. is demanding that the president of Venezuela open his country's border to a hostile foreign power that is actively attempting to overthrow the Venezuelan government. Trump is constantly lying about the people who come across the U.S. border, and now he's lying about the U.S. efforts to illegally cross into Venezuela's territory. Unlike Trump's border wall in the U.S., he's being supported by Democrats in trying to violate the sovereignty of Venezuela. On Monday, Trump gave a belligerent speech in Miami filled with threats against the Maduro government. The eyes of the entire world are upon you today, every day, and every day in the future. You cannot hide from the choice that now confronts you. And by the way, let's not forget that National Security Advisor John Bolton recently suggested that the U.S. may consider sending Maduro to the Guantanamo prison camp. You know, I wish him a long, quiet retirement on a pretty beach far from Venezuela. And uh, the sooner he takes advantage of that, the sooner he's likely to have a nice, quiet uh, retirement on a pretty beach rather than being in some other beach area like Guantanamo. Over the weekend, an extremely sweaty Senator Marco Rubio of Florida appeared on CNN from the Columbia border where the U.S. military planes have been landing. And Marco Rubio had the audacity to say that the refusal of Maduro to participate in this U.S. humanitarian aid stunt would constitute what Rubio called a crime against humanity. A greater danger, but I will say this to you. We know if there is violence next week and people are harmed here, we know who's responsible for it. And every single one of them will pay a price. They will they will face justice and they will spend or they will spend the rest of their lives worried about justice catching up to them. On CNN, Rubio was also asked whether he would support U.S. military action in Venezuela. 
there are certain lines, and Maduro knows what they are, and if they are crossed, there will, I am confident, based on everything I've heard from this administration and everything I know about this administration, that the consequences will be severe and they'll be swift. And he's aware of that. You see, this is a classic U.S. model that's being applied right now to Venezuela. You interfere, destabilize, sanction, smear a country and its government. You unleash weapons of economic destruction. You deprive people of basic goods and dignity. And then you overtly pretend that you had nothing to do with it. This was all the socialists who did this. You blame the government for the destruction. You demand that people rise up against their government. You demand they accept whatever puppet the U.S. wants installed or else the misery and suffering will continue. Just listen to the analysis of one of puppet leader Juan Guaido's advisors in the U.S., Ricardo Hausman. He's a Venezuelan living in the U.S. He's at the Harvard Center for International Development, the so-called Venezuela Project of the Harvard Growth Lab. Hausman has spent years attacking the initiatives of Hugo Chavez that were aimed at improving literacy and offering food subsidies and helping the poorest Venezuelans. At the same time, Hausman has been advocating for more multinational corporations to divvy up Venezuela's oil resources. He wants a neoliberal economic model to be reintroduced in Venezuela. In a recent interview with Bloomberg News, Hausman talked about the neoliberal institutions that he and Guaido want to bring into Venezuela after they bring Maduro down. This is critical, Ricardo Hausman. You're going to be on every committee to get this solved. Which global institutions come to the rescue to rebuild a totally fractured economy? IMF, World Bank, so or is we, it the U.S. once again? We have been in touch with all of them. I have been in touch with all of them. I've been working for the last three years on a morning after plan for Venezuela. The President Guaido has a morning after plan. Are you we've in collaborated. Touch with him now? We've talked to the IMF. We've talked to World Bank. We've have you talked, talked to, to Mr. IGB. Guaido? Absolutely. How yeah. recently? Yeah. Recently? Yes. For now, the Maduro government says that it's not going to bow to U.S. pressure. But the CIA, the Trump administration, powerful political figures from both parties in the United States, they're all pushing the propaganda. They're secretly meeting with members of Venezuela's military, and there are allegations of weapons smuggling. It's all so very reminiscent of the 1980s and the dirty wars in Central America. The Iran-Contra scandal transfixed Washington for most of 1987 and renewed a struggle as old as the Republic between the president and Congress. But actually, in the 1980s, you had congressional opposition. You had a real fight. How can our system of government work if the administration is not candid in its answers to the Congress? Congress blocked Reagan from funding the Contras. That was the whole point of Iran-Contra, to circumvent congressional Democrats actually fighting to stop the flow of U.S. support for death squads. Now... Instead of asking real questions, instead of holding the White House responsible, the Democrats have largely fallen in line behind Donald Trump. Venezuela's foreign minister said that strategy and the attempt to install Juan Guaido as president have failed. The momentum of the coup that the government of the United States was promoting is over. It didn't happen. You have to rethink your strategy. Now, I've said this numerous times, and I will say it again. There are very serious, legitimate grievances against the Maduro government in Venezuela. The U.S. interference is not the only story here, and it's not the sole reason that Venezuela is facing the incredible tumult, the incredible suffering that it is. Hugo Chavez played a role in this. Maduro continues to play a role in it. 
people in Venezuela should have their right to choose their leaders respected without any outside interference for Maduro or against him. But there is, in my view, no defensible case whatsoever that can be made that the United States government or the Trump administration should be the decider for the people of Venezuela. None. The media coverage of this crisis has been absolutely abominable. It's been one-sided. It's been lazy. And at times, it has supported yet another disastrous path toward overthrowing a government that poses absolutely no threat to the people of the United States whatsoever. And that is why we're focusing on this part of the story, the U.S. role, because it's not being told almost anywhere in the U.S. media. And as this regime change campaign continues to intensify, massive protests are continuing to rock Haiti. At the heart of those protests is the demand that the U.S.-backed president of Haiti resign. Haitians are fed up with the corruption, the austerity measures, the poverty that so many live in while the Washington-friendly elite pillage the country. The contrast between Haiti and Venezuela could not be more stark. The Haitians are protesting against a U.S. client government, a government in Port-au-Prince that has been blackmailed and pressured into supporting the U.S. campaign for regime change in Venezuela. We're going to dig deep into the situations in both Haiti and Venezuela. Joining me now are two guests. Kim Ives is one of the founders of the weekly newspaper Haiti Liberté, where he is a writer and editor. That paper has offices in Port-au-Prince and in Brooklyn, New York. I'm also joined by George Chicarillo Maher. He is currently visiting scholar at the Hemispheric Institute of Performance and Politics and author of three books. We created Chavez, A People's History of the Venezuelan Revolution, Building the Commune, Radical Democracy in Venezuela, and most recently, Decolonizing Dialectics. Kim, George, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Kim, let's begin with you. We've seen massive protests erupt in Haiti as the Trump administration is threatening directly Venezuela. What is happening on the ground right now in Haiti? Well, it's an uprising similar to that 33 years ago in Haiti under the regime of Jean-Claude Babydock Duvalier. Thousands of Haitians made a pilgrimage today to Gonaive, a city north of Port-au-Prince, where three students were shot to death last November. They were remembered as martyrs at a mass celebrating the fall of Duvalier, which was... He uh, ended up having to be flown out of Haiti on a... U.S. Air Force plane to a golden exile in France, but the um, rebellion continued for the next five years and resulted in the election of Jean-Bertrand Aristide in 1990. So I feel we're in a similar period. Basically, the people are fed up with this neo-devalurist government, which has been in power basically since 2011, thanks to Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton who uh, facilitated the rise of Michel Martelly, who was able to uh, capture the presidency and then plunder the Petro-Caribe fund uh, that Venezuela had provided Haiti, about $4 billion worth of oil revenues, thereby have his uh, successor elected, who is Jovenel Moise, the guy currently in power. So the people are fed up with the corruption and with the misery that they're in because the money that was supposed to go for development programs that Hugo Chavez envisioned happening instead went into chalets and fast cars. Who is Moise? He is a um, 
putative agribusiness entrepreneur. He has a business called Agritrans, but he came into office, interestingly, indicted for money laundering. Ironically, he says, I'm going to uproot corruption. I'm the guy who's going to uproot corruption. And yet, you can't find a more corrupt guy. But he really got set back on his heels back in July after the Venezuelan crude spigot was turned off. The IMF told him, hey, man, you got you to raise the prices on uh, gas and oil and kerosene. And they raised them like 50 percent on a day. And the people went ballistic. In February, the International Monetary Fund agreed to give Haiti $96 million in much-needed funds, but only if the government agreed to several measures, one of which was raising the price of government-subsidized fuel. The government complied. Chaos ensued. So that was really a precursor to what's happened now. The U.S. basically sees Haiti as a pawn in their war against Venezuela. They can't do it through the UN Security Council, their usual fig leaf, because of the problems now with Russia and China who are going to put the kibosh on that uh, with their veto in the Security Council. So they have to go to the junior varsity, which is, of course, the OAS, the Organization of American States, what uh, Cuba rightly calls Washington's Ministry of Colonial Affairs. So they're trying to push through this uh, democratic charter, which was passed on September 11th, 2001, which basically says if two-thirds of the 35 members of the OAS can vote together, they can intervene in another country. Right now, they have 19 votes. Haiti voted against sanctioning Venezuela in the March 2017 OAS vote. Then there was another vote last year, and they abstained. But this year, on January 10th, finally, the browbeating and the bullying and the bribery maybe came to fruition, and they voted with Washington that Nicolas Maduro was illegitimate after receiving these $4 billion in Petro-Caribe funds. So that was really the spark that set off the rebellion we're seeing today. The people said, come on, that's just too much. George, I, I want to get your response to Donald Trump's speech in Miami on Monday, where he gave this full frontal assault on the Maduro government and basically said Maduro's days are numbered. Anyone in his inner circle who wants to who stay alive basically needs to jump off that ship. George, respond to the tone and the threats made in the Trump speech in Miami. I mean, this was really an astonishing speech. We should be clear about that. He didn't simply threaten Venezuela, but he talked about a new day for Latin America. Hello, Miami. I am thrilled to be back in the state I love with so many proud, freedom-loving patriots. We're here to proclaim a new day is coming in Latin America. It's coming. He was uh, not even implying, but explicitly stating a return to a century-old policy of, of non-sovereignty in Latin America, as Greg Grandin has shown in, in recent writings. You know, a, a return to the explicit terms of the Monroe Doctrine, in which the United States gets to dictate what happens, uh, you know, across the hemisphere. And he spoke in hemispheric terms. And he spoke, of course, this was, you know, sanitized as democracy. Um, but he spoke explicitly in 
in terms of the United States being able to dictate what happens across the hemisphere. What Trump did was explicitly to pressure not just the inner circle of Maduro, but also military leaders more broadly. He sort of gave them an ultimatum. He said, you know, you uh, would you like to live out the rest of your lives comfortably with your families or do you want to go down with this sinking ship? So it was explicitly a threat. It's the same increasingly desperate attempt to split the Venezuelan military. Trump and the in the Venezuelan opposition thought that this would happen immediately. It, of course, didn't. Um, and so now what they're really trying to do is to turn the screws and to up the narrative and the, and the rhetorical sort of fire toward Venezuela to make it a broad historical uh, shift. This is explicit interventionism and its attempt to, of course, an attempt at regime change, an attempt to, uh, you know, at a coup, and an attempt to use this sort of fake, you know, humanitarian aid uh, as a Trojan horse to bring down a government. On the issue of that so-called humanitarian aid, over the weekend, you had additional U.S. military aircraft landing in Colombia near the Venezuela border. Marco Rubio is, is down there running point on the propaganda for the United States. We have a choice to make. Do we want or do we not want people in Venezuela to have food and medicine? And if we do, then we have to try. And if, in fact, a criminal regime tries to block it, then the world will see its true nature and take that into account in its next steps. At the same time, Venezuela has said that they've seized weapons, that there was an attempt to illegally smuggle into Venezuela. And the Venezuelan government of Maduro is saying that those weapons were intended to be used for violence against the legitimate government of Venezuela. What is your response to the Trump administration and also Democrats like Nancy Pelosi who say Maduro is not allowing this desperately needed humanitarian aid into Venezuela? The Venezuelan economy is in, in an incredibly difficult position, owing to you know things ranging from government mismanagement in a certain way of the of the currency in, in particular, um, but also to explicit sabotage, uh, black market activity, currency speculation, U.S. intervention in sanctions, especially beginning about a year ago under Trump, um, and these things have all really been clamping down on the everyday standard of living of many Venezuelans. It is not, however, you know, we're talking, uh, for example, we're talking with Kim about about Haiti. It is not a humanitarian crisis on the scale that many countries are facing across the globe. The economy has hit a severe downturn, um, but aid is explicitly being used as a political weapon at this point. The Red Cross has come out and said this is, quote, not humanitarian aid. The United Nations won't touch it, of course. And the actual amount of the aid is really a pittance when it comes to the effect, the crushing effect of these U.S. sanctions. So if the United States had any intentions or, or any uh, you know pretension of wanting to help everyday Venezuelan people, the first thing, of course, to do would be to uh, lift the sanctions. But that is not the goal. You know, normally when U.S. military aircraft fly in and land on the border, uh, it's pretty clear uh, what's going to happen. And it's pretty clear what the objectives are. Um, but for some reason, Republicans and Democrats alike, for the most part, outside of a couple of these, this new cohort of, of representatives, uh, are, are fooling themselves, are deluding themselves into, you know, this narrative of democracy that's being put forward by, not only by Trump, but by Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, who's an open fascist, you know, by all these far right-wing governments across Latin America that because the OS wasn't pliable enough for them, formed something called the Lima Group, you know, explicitly, uh, you know, aiming at the overthrow of this Venezuelan government. Kim, you have spent decades reporting on Haiti, on revolutions, on counter-revolutions. Give an overview of how the United States has used the pretext of humanitarianism 
in its operations in an attempt to fulfill its agenda in Haiti? Well, probably the best example is the 2010 earthquake. They started to have trouble with René Preval. So the U.S., you know, came and they shoved a lot of things down his throat so that they could go into Haitian territorial waters whenever they wanted. They privatized all the state industries and Preval did that. But he was resentful the whole time. And so here come the Venezuelans saying, listen, we're going to give you capital uh, and you can start to rebuild your country with this. The first thing that Preval did when he came into power after his second election was sign the Petrocaribe deal with Vincente Rangel, the Venezuelan vice president. So he signs this agreement and it took him two years basically to get the oil really flowing and get the Petrocaribe fund, this capital fund. So the U.S. now was pissed about this. And here comes the earthquake and they say, ah, here's a golden opportunity. So they basically took over Preval's government. The Pentagon, who landed 20,000 U.S. troops with no invitation from Haiti, no permission even from Haiti, sent in Hillary Clinton to start to stage manage everything. And then Bill Clinton's running the Haiti Interim Recovery Commission. And together, the Clintons played prominent roles after the earthquake as for-profit companies and aid organizations rushed in to be part of a $10 billion reconstruction program. They passed a, a, a law, a state of emergency, and basically took over the government and started to bring in, of course, all the usual contractors, you know, uh, Brown and Root and... Halliburton. Halliburton, et cetera, et cetera, rebuilding. So, but they weren't done yet. They needed to basically get Preval out. Now, Preval had an election coming up. Uh, there was the presidential election. So in this election, Jude Celestin came in second in the first round. And this guy, Michel Martelly, who was basically a neo-devalier, much more U.S.-centric, came in third in January 2011. Hillary Clinton flies to Port-au-Prince to read René Preval the Riot Act and say, you got to take your guy out and put Michel Martelly in, which finally, as is his want, he did. In comes Martelly and out goes Preval. So the humanitarian aid, the whole, the whole takeover, supposedly to the benefit of the Haitians, was used essentially for economic enrichment in this political coup via an election. And we see the result today. That's what the people are rising up about. George, what do you make of the way that the Venezuelan government under Maduro has been responding to Juan Guaido declaring himself president, um, the onslaught of the propaganda machine from the U.S., uh, but also this military buildup that we're witnessing and that, uh, coupled with the threats? I think the Maduro government has had to walk a very difficult line. So on the one hand, they don't want to look weak. They certainly don't want to look as if they're ceding to this uh, sort of unelected, self-proclaimed uh, interim president. Uh, but on the other hand, they don't want to provoke. 
So, for example, when Maduro very justifiably ordered uh, U.S. diplomatic officials out of the country, I mean, totally legitimate given U.S. intervention into uh, you know this whole affair, Trump refused to recognize this. He said they, they didn't need to leave, he's not the president, etc. Maduro then uh, very carefully ratcheted down the tension around this question because it would have been legitimate to arrest those officials, detain them, and expel them. But this was, in a way, precisely what Trump wanted. Now, the next provocation is what's going to happen on the border, where um, the U.S. Uh, in league with the Venezuelan opposition is going to attempt to force this aid across the border. Today at the mass protest, Guaido announced a deadline for getting the aid into Venezuela, the 23rd of February. Maduro shows no sign of relenting. The goal is to literally violate the sovereign territory of Venezuela. I think it's going to be really tense what happens over the next few days. And unfortunately, in the medium term, uh, what's going to happen is that the new wave of Trump sanctions and now the even newer wave that he's then sort of folded on top of these is really going to crush the Venezuelan economy even further. And so absent other sources of aid and support, it's going to be very difficult for the Venezuelan uh, government to really hold out amid this blockade. Now, we do know that um, that some Russian and Chinese aid has arrived um, and it's being distributed. Um, and we, you know, there's no reason to doubt that that's not far more than these sort of symbolic pittances that the U.S. is offering. Um, but whether or not that will be enough is really going to be part of what plays out in the long term. We've got an oil blockade. You've got the actual theft of billions of dollars uh, held in U.S. accounts that have been handed over to Guaido. You've got Guaido attempting to, uh, you know, basically get the Bank of England to hand over all of the gold that Venezuela has stored there. In other words, this mass theft of money that should be used to really ride out this, you know, this economic crisis and to put the Venezuelan economy on a more stable footing. You know, Andrew McCabe, who's on his you know, media tour right now for his book and the big headlines that he made was talking about plans to allegedly invoke the 25th Amendment to try to have Donald Trump removed as president based on his mental health or lack thereof. But he also talks about Venezuela in his book. And, and I just want to read, George, a quote from Andrew McCabe's book about a 2017 Oval Office meeting. He says, quote, then the president talked about Venezuela. That's the country we should be going to war with, he said. They have all that oil and they're right on our back door. Is that really what you see as the U.S. agenda here, George? Uh, they've been very clear about that, but I think the quote that you read is is also very revealing. He says, "All that oil and there, you know, they're right there in our backyard, essentially." Right? We're talking the the Monroe Doctrine. So uh, this is about economics. In other words, it is about uh, economic control, but it's also about political control. And I think we should remember that because part of what the Chavista legacy is is not just the you know the the demand for national sovereignty um, but the construction of regional alliances in other words we've been talking about petro caribe um, but also other uh, international uh, regional uh, alliances partnerships that have provided a cushion for latin american countries to act independently in other words uh, not having to appeal to the world bank and the imf for funding if they have a momentary uh, glitch in their economy being able to borrow money from venezuela from argentina 
what's happened over the past few years is that this regional alliance has been disintegrated bit by bit. You know, we're talking about coups in Honduras, quasi-coups in Brazil, in Paraguay, uh, elections in Argentina, in Chile, in Colombia, um, that have really helped to pull apart uh, this, this regional alliance. The Lima Group is the product of this. In other words, the new right wing in Latin America um, that has made it harder. And so in the absence of the U.S.'s ability to overthrow Chavez, as they failed to do in 2002, um, they set about, you know, working around the edges and tearing apart uh, this regional unity. And they've been very successful at that, which now makes Venezuela that much more susceptible uh, to their direct uh, pressure. And of course, the goal of that regional control is economic control, is the ability to intervene and have, uh, you know, these resources, uh, these markets uh, at their at their command. Kim, the um, the 1980s seems to be a big reference point now. You bring in people like Elliot Abrams, who was deeply involved with war crimes, massacres, covering them up, lying to Congress, Iran-Contra. John Bolton, who uh, spent his entire life dedicated to spreading war around the world. And then a very militaristic Secretary of State in Mike Pompeo, plus the military provocation. At the same time that Trump said during his State of the Union that there's this threat of socialism even within the borders of the United States, set what we're seeing right now in Central and Latin America in the broader context. Well, I think it's interesting. Haiti has always had this sort of vanguard role in history. At the peak of the colonial prosperity and period in the late 18th century, the Haitian Revolution burst forth in 1791. They basically said the watchwords of the French Revolution, liberté, égalité, fraternité, are not being applied here in France and the Caribbean, and started a 13-year revolution, which ended up making the first independent nation of Latin America, the first black republic, and was the touchstone for all the revolutions across the continent. It was the Haitians who gave Bolivar his guns, his ships, his printing presses, his soldiers to fight the battles on the continent and free it. Fast forward to the 1980s, a period when the Soviet Union has finally been brought to its knees by uh, the Reagan administration and, and uh, Bush, and the Sandinistas have been beaten in a sort of electoral coup in 1990. And the Haitians say, damn it all, we're going to elect Jean-Bertrand Aristide, this anti-imperialist liberation theologian. Then starts really a wave, the pink tide, we could say, because Chavez saw this in Venezuela and Morales in Bolivia and Correa in Ecuador. And they said, damn, we can do the same thing. So they borrowed the Haitian playbook and set off the pink tide. Now that has been fought back. The U.S. has now captured one by one Argentina, Chile, Brazil now. We end up uh, with a situation where the Haitians are now standing up once again and saying, damn, we're going to fight back against this. So I think, yes, we, ha we see this sort of polarization with these ultra-militarist, uh, ultra-reactionary people coming to power in the U.S., George, I've talked about this on previous episodes, but I, wa I want to remind people of something that we're seeing unfold in real time, and that is this continued reference by U.S. political figures, including Nancy Pelosi and Trump, and constantly on, particularly on television news media, that Maduro is blocking 
uh, a bridge between Colombia and Venezuela. Um, I had a colleague of mine who specializes in satellite imagery go through all of the images from this particular bridge. And people will remember this image because it was shown all over the world of these trucks and shipping containers blocking uh, what appears to be a modern high uh, uh, super bridge that connects Colombia and Venezuela. And you have never seen a car cross that bridge, according to these satellite images. We've gone through all of the images for for years and years and years. That bridge, uh, which we were told last week by the Deputy Foreign Minister Carlos Ron, uh, had never been in use and hasn't yet been inaugurated. But now we've been looking at these historical satellite images from this specific site, and we never once saw a car crossing that bridge. It seems pretty clear that this is an intentional effort to propagandize and make people believe that Maduro is blocking aid from coming across that bridge when the reality is the bridge has never been used before. It seems like it's meant to be an inciting image that would be used to justify continued U.S. hostility and aggression. Absolutely. This is, it's pure Hollywood, right? Like it's literally a put on that is being used to justify this war. The The bridge was never opened. And I'm glad you all have gone back through, you know, the satellite footage to prove something that that people have been saying, um, because it's it's repeated. It becomes sort of like just a narrative that, that is repeated throughout the media that this bridge is being blocked uh, when it literally was never used, right? It was not a bridge that was used, but that was used for commercial traffic. It was not a bridge that was used to cross any kind of aid. Um, and so it hasn't been blocked. It hasn't been obstructed. Um, but this also is used to distract from the fact that, and, and to almost fall into that narrative, that the aid is somehow legitimate or the so-called aid. It's not aid. You know, you had Trump uh, on TV yesterday celebrating Oscar Perez, who, if people recall, was a self-proclaimed Venezuelan rebel leader who then commandeered a helicopter and lobbed grenades at the Supreme Court. Oscar gave his life for the freedom of his people. We all have hope today because of great, great people and patriots like Oscar. Please. It feels like, you know, we're back under Reagan. You know, we're back in the period in which the Contras were freedom fighters, right? While they were just decapitating and raping and pillaging across uh, Nicaragua. These people don't care about aid. They don't care about the Venezuelan people. They don't care about democracy. This is absolutely clear. Um, And so we're left in this situation where we're still fighting through these bizarre media narratives that are all used to justify something that we all know is also not true. And the Democrats, for the most part, 99%, are falling right into into this script and into this narrative. I, I want to uh, also ask for your response to the latest rounds of sanctions from the Trump administration targeting specific individuals in the Maduro government and whether you accept uh, the premise of any of the U.S. allegations against specific individuals within Maduro's government and Maduro himself uh, on the issue of corruption or plundering state resources or mismanaging funds for the country? Is there is there no legitimacy whatsoever to the allegations being made by Guaido or uh, the U.S. Treasury Department? I mean, if it, it, is there corruption in Venezuela? Absolutely. There always has been, and it's rife in oil economies, and it was rife before Chavez, and it continued. And there were struggles against it that probably didn't go as far as they should have. Um, but this all takes place in the context of a government trying to maintain a tense balance of power, trying to, you know, clean up 
the the government as much as possible while uh, the economy is then later being wrecked um, in a way that incentivizes corruption. For example, today, uh, the, the deciders in Venezuela, as a result of this U.S. pressure, are generals. Um, and this is not a good situation for a country to be in um, because generals, you know, are then able to make demands of the government for their own personal uh, enrichment. And this is not, you know, this isn't something that we should uh, want. But there are two qu- two questions, I think, that, that are outstanding. One is, does the United States have absolutely any moral authority to talk about what's going on in the Venezuelan government? And I think the answer is a resounding no. Um, but the second point is that there's also been this bizarre, and it really is bizarre, press uh, narrative that says that the original Trump sanctions were targeted. The sanctions that have been in place for more than a year now have been absolutely debilitating. They have not been targeted at individuals either, despite people repeating this over and over and over again. Um, They uh, made it almost impossible for Venezuela to uh, acquire financing to help the oil industry continue to function. I just want to push back against this narrative that the sanctions that exist have been targeting individuals because they've actually really helped to destroy the quality you know, of life of many Venezuelans. You can see this in the level of oil production, which declined precipitously over the last year. Um, And the effect is in the streets. There is corruption. There's always been corruption. It is the social movements on the grassroots level that have wanted to fight that corruption, that have sought to provide oversight against that corruption. Um, But they are precisely the ones who are being hammered today by those very same sanctions. All right. We got to leave it there. George, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Kim Ives, thank you as well. Thanks, Jeremy. Kim Ives is a longtime journalist focused on Haiti. He's the founder of the weekly publication, Haiti Liberté. And George Chicarillo Maher is the author of We Created Chavez, A People's History of the Venezuelan Revolution. While the newly elected Democratic congresswoman from Minneapolis, Ilhan Omar, is facing an onslaught of attacks from Donald Trump and Mike Pence, they're demanding that she resign. But she also has had the full weight of the Democratic Party leadership crash down upon her, with Pelosi and Chuck Schumer leading the charge and publicly denouncing her. From Speaker Nancy Pelosi, leader Cindy Hoyer, and many others now, they say that they condemn what she has said. Uh, Congresswoman Omar's use of anti-Semitic tropes and prejudicial accusations about Israel's supporters is deeply offensive. They're smearing her as an anti-Semite because she dared to criticize the Israeli lobby AIPAC. Both Trump and Pence have suggested that at a minimum, Nancy Pelosi should strip Ilhan Omar of her committee assignments. And I think she should either resign from Congress or she should certainly resign from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Now, of course, Ilhan Omar was pressured into issuing an apology, but she forged ahead unbowed. In fact, during a Foreign Relations Committee hearing on Venezuela last week, Representative Omar broke with the fake decorum of Washington, and she actually questioned the murderous record of the Trump administration's point man on Venezuela. I'm talking about Elliot Abrams. He, of course, is an unrepentant war criminal. He lied to cover up Iran-Contra. He was a key player in massacres and widespread killing in Central America and the effort to cover those up. And Ilhan Omar asked him about all of this as he sat right there before Congress. I failed to understand uh, why members of this committee or the American people should find any testimony that you give uh, today to be truthful. If I can respond to that. Uh, um, it wasn't a question. 
I was on February. That was it not. That was not a question. I that was. The, I. I reserve the right I'm, to my time. It is not. It is not right. That was not a question. Can attack on February eighth. Who is not permitted to reply? That. That was not a question. Thank you for your participation. After Ilhan Omar questioned Abrams, a gaggle of bipartisan foreign policy elites scrambled one over the other to defend Elliot Abrams. Max Boot, the vile neoconservative who currently masquerades as a changed man and has never met a war he didn't love other people to fight, he wrote an entire Washington Post column attacking Ilhan Omar and lying about Abrams and saying that he's this magical warrior for human rights and democracy. Max Boot called Omar's questions a, quote, botched interrogation and a disgraceful attack on Elliot Abrams. But it wasn't just Max Boot. Several Democratic or, let's say, more liberal foreign policy elites rushed to defend Abrams. A senior official at the Center for American Progress, Kelly Magsaman, she was on Barack Obama and George W. Bush's National Security Councils. This is what she tweeted and then later deleted this tweet. She said, quote, I worked for Elliot Abrams as a civil servant. He is a fierce advocate for human rights and democracy. Yes, he made some serious professional mistakes and was held accountable. I'm a liberal, but I'm also fair. We have a lot of work to do together in Venezuela. We share goals. So today on this show, we want to paint a very clear picture of who Elliot Abrams really is. And we want to make sure that everyone who is backing the Trump administration's drive to overthrow the Venezuelan government understands what exactly happens when Elliot Abrams is unleashed on a country. We asked my Intercept colleague, John Schwartz, to walk us through the bloody and murderous career of the man now in charge of U.S.-Venezuela operations. Elliot Abrams comes from the top tier of American society. You know, he went to Harvard as an undergraduate, then he went to Harvard Law School, then he went to work for various senators, actually Democratic senators, during the 1970s. He had become dissatisfied by the wimpy foreign policy of the Democratic Party and decided that the Reagan administration was going to be doing the kinds of things that he supported. But in spite of, or maybe because of, a flurry of stories about places like Nicaragua and El Salvador, and yes, some concerted propaganda. Many of us find it hard to believe we have a stake in problems involving those countries. Too many have thought of Central America as just that place way down below Mexico that can't possibly constitute a threat to our well-being. Central America's problems do directly affect the security and the well-being of our own people. And Central America is much closer to the United States than many of the world trouble spots that concern us. So we work to restore our own economy. Elliot Abrams joined the Reagan administration. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In and he was named... Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs, one day after the El Mazote massacre in El Salvador. What was done in El Mazote is, like, people don't really have the vocabulary to communicate this kind of evil. In front of one hovel lay a blue-knit infant's bonnet near a plastic baby bottle. Inside, among the ruins, skeletons of two bodies were discernible, along with the jumble of bones from an undetermined number of others, possibly members of the same family or maybe just friends. Inside, five skulls were strewn among the smashed tiles. At the edge of a cornfield, under the green leaves of the banana trees, was a pile of 14 bodies, infants and men and women in their teens and early 20s. Horrified disbelief was reflected in their wide eyes and gaping mouths. In the heap was a child, perhaps five years old. There was a months-old infant wrapped securely around the buttocks in a clean cotton bath towel, as if he or she were being carried, perhaps by the face-down woman in plastic sandals. The earth was littered with spent M16 automatic rifle cartridges. The victims were members of an evangelical group and had gathered in a house for protection. The house was shambles. So Raymond Bonner and also a reporter from the Washington Post got into El Mazote, which is like a mountain. It's in a mountainous region near the border with Honduras. Uh, Within a couple of weeks of the massacre occurring, and it was reported in the New York Times uh, by the end of January. It's about six weeks after it happened. And the Reagan administration was very angry about this. One of the things that Elliot Abrams helped with was trying to discredit the reporters and claim that this was, you know, 1981 fake news. They went to the editors of the New York Times and complained about him. You know, uh, he's sympathetic to the Salvadoran guerrillas. Maybe he's actually on their side. Possibly he's a communist. And they did that very successfully and uh, pretty much destroyed Raymond Bonner's career for a period of time. And of course, you know, in retrospect, everything Bonner reported was accurate and everything that the Reagan administration said was a lie. 
Up in the mountains at El Mazote, archaeologists are digging up the bones of 1,000 peasants massacred by the armed forces. This massacre happened 12 years ago at the start of the civil war between the army and FMLN guerrillas. Although there is now peace in El Salvador, the authors of this war crime have never been brought to trial. Rafina was the sole survivor. They had an order to exterminate everything, to kill everybody, an operation to demolish everything in the land, to raise the land flat. Her testimony, reported by the world's media, was scorned by the governments of both El Salvador and the United States. With the bones dug up, the United Nations Truth Commission now hopes to bring justice in El Mazote and other war crimes, threatening over 10 years of military impunity and power. Since the Spanish colonized Central America, so that's Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Honduras, they had set up a social system that was very close to slavery, if not uh, slavery for real. And it developed a culture of like tremendous cruelty over hundreds of years. And if the people who were working the plantations like stuck their heads up, there were all kinds of like hideous massacres throughout Central American history. But what happened in 1979 is that the Somoza dictatorship, which the U.S. had supported in Nicaragua, was overthrown. And lots of other people all over Central America took notice and were like, hey, you know, it, it would be nice if you know, we were not being continually massacred by dictators ourselves. And of course, conservatives in Central America, conservatives in the United States, the incoming Reagan administration saw this and were like, you know, these people suddenly have hope for their lives. We can't have that. We must stamp it out. To them, every single thing is communism. An eight-hour workday is communism. A minimum wage is communism. You know, children not working and dying in mines is communism. So to them, yes, they were scared of communism, and that's what they were scared of, you know, like, like a minimal, just decent life for regular people. Administration officials angrily rejected a congressional report charging that U.S. involvement in El Salvador is quietly escalating, much as it did in Vietnam. The State Department said the limit of 55 military advisors has not been violated and denied that American troops have been getting into combat, saying the policy against it is strictly enforced. Officials also rejected charges that Congress was missing led about aid to El Salvador and that money earmarked for economic assistance to the people has been used to help the military. It is unfair and inaccurate to charge that our strategy in El Salvador is overwhelmingly military. We categorically reject the assertion that Congress has been deceived by the administration. In the early 80s, the same period of time when Abrams was helping cover up what the Salvadoran military was doing with our assistance and training. Efrain Rios Mont was the uh, strongman dictator of Guatemala, and he was later found guilty by a Guatemalan court of committing genocide. At the time, Elliot Abrams was going on the news and he was saying, well, Rios Mont has brought considerable progress. If we take the attitude that don't come to us until you're perfect, we're going to walk away from this problem until Guatemala has a perfect human rights record, then we're going to be uh, leaving in the lurch people there who are trying to make progress and are succeeding. Are you, do you firmly believe that the, that the key person who's trying to make progress is President Rios Mont? Yes, because the government uh, policies really changed after he came in in uh, March of last year. 
uh, and he is, I think it's fair now to say, practicing what he preaches, there has been a tremendous change, especially in the attitude of the government towards the Indian population, which used to be seen as an enemy and is now seen as a citizen. Toward the Indian population, you know, meaning the people who he was attempting to exterminate. As with El Salvador, with Guatemala, like he was also the point man to tell the lies that needed to be told. The fact that conditions there are terrible, which we all know, doesn't qualify you for asylum or the whole world would be coming well, I here. I think that we don't qualify for asylum only because the repression and the massacres that are being carried on in El Salvador are supported by the U.S. government. Well, we don't so support the, repression and we don't if support the, if, the, if the State Department or the immigration services of the United States would provide asylum for the refugees, they would be contradicting themselves because that would mean that they don't have to send arms so that the repression keep on. We provide asylum to people from dozens and dozens. So Abrams is maybe best known for his involvement in the Iran-Contra affair. After the Nicaraguan dictator Somoza had been overthrown, the United States organized and funded the Contras. And so this was a guerrilla army whose goal was to overthrow the new socialist Nicaraguan government. Fundamentally, what's going on is that there is an effort by the Soviet Union and Cuba to establish another communist country in the Western Hemisphere. There's one, Cuba. There was briefly another one in Grenada until we solved that problem. And now the problem is, uh, what about Nicaragua? What is going to happen with Nicaragua? Abrams was like hip deep in all of this. And the problem from the perspective of the Reagan administration was that the Contras were like, number one, they were drug smugglers. Uh, number two, they were largely like actual terrorists, like the kind of attacks that they conducted on Nicaraguans were you know, extremely gruesome, also just attacking civilians. And so Congress, you know, eventually said, no, we're not going to spend any more money on the Contras. And so the Reagan administration was left with this problem. Well, obviously, we can't stop attacking the Nicaraguan government. So we've got to come up with some money some other way. And one of the ways they decided that they would come up with money was just like going around to friendly right-wing governments around the world and being like, hey, can you help out and chip in? Basically, the next president confronts a choice between permitting a new Cuba to develop or acting forcefully to prevent it. The purpose of President Reagan's policy of supporting the freedom fighters is to make sure that we don't have to confront that choice. We can protect our national security and keep the Soviets from getting a new colony consolidated in Central America just by helping those Nicaraguans who want to fight for their own country. And if we abandon them, then it's very clear that there's only one other force that stands between the Soviets and taking that colony, and that's us. So one of the ways we tried to get the money was the Iran part, where we were going to sell arms to Iran and take the proceeds from the sales and give it to the Contras. But another plan was to go to people like the Sultan of Brunei, one of the richest human beings on Earth. And Abrams, acting under the codename Kenilworth, went to London and set up a deal with the Sultan of Brunei where he would give the United States $10 million that we would pass along to the Contras. So they have this super secret special plan 
everything is ready to go. Elliot Abrams says, here's the Swiss bank account number that you should wire this money to. And the number that he gave the Sultan of Brunei was off by one digit. So the $10 million went accidentally to one random lucky recipient. And the ambassador cabled back, and that is Exhibit 20, stating that he had met with an official of the government of Brunei, conveyed that message, and had found the official visibly shaken when he was told that the money still had not been received, correct? Yes. And as you understand from subsequent events that have transpired only within the last several weeks, the money subsequently has been located, having been deposited <coughs> into the wrong account in Switzerland. Well, now that's right. It was, I couldn't figure out what had happened, although as I looked back at past testimony, I, uh, a, an error in the number was obviously a logical possibility, and I guess that's what in fact happened. All right, sir. Now, Elliot Abrams was deeply involved in everything involving the Iran-Contra story. But where he got into true legal trouble is that he testified in front of Congress. And a nice way of putting it, the charge that he eventually pleaded guilty to was withholding information from Congress. He pleaded guilty to two counts. He got 100 hours of community service, which he saw as perhaps the greatest injustice in mankind's history. And uh, then he was pardoned by President Bush number one as that Bush was going out the door I think it is shameful for the United States to be going around rattling a tin cup. I think it is shameful. I did it because the Contras were, as far as I knew, starving. At this point, to everyone in Washington, he was seen as damaged goods. And there was a belief, well, you know, he's never going to return to any presidential administration. But this truly underestimated him. William Crow, who had been chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he saw how resilient Abrams was and said at the time about Abrams, this snake's hard to kill. And he was right because Bill Clinton came into office for eight years, but then the Republicans were back with George W. Bush. And to the surprise of all naive Washingtonians, Abrams was back too. Bush hired him not for assistant secretary of state position where he would need congressional approval, but rather on the National Security Council where the president can just appoint them. Like this is true of John Bolton, too, who would have trouble getting congressional approval for any position that required it. Again, uh, in positions where his title said that he was going to be promoting democracy and human rights. So what did Elliot Abrams do during the Bush administration? One of the things he did was getting involved with Venezuela 16 years ago, actually 17 years ago at this point. Uh, Hugo Chavez was president of Venezuela in 2002. Uh, this infuriated the U.S. right wing. And there was a coup that was successful for only a couple of days because Chavez had so much support in the Venezuelan population and he was able to finagle his way back into power. But word got out that the media had tricked people and Chavez supporters poured onto the streets demanding that their president be returned. So who is behind the coup? Reporting at the time said that the crucial figure around the coup 
was Abrams, was Elliot Abrams, and that he gave a nod to the plotters to go ahead. Uh, you know, it's going to take decades until we know the full story, but it should not be a surprise to anyone if the United States was behind it and Elliot Abrams specifically. Where does Abrams show up next? He made national news because of uh, Representative Ilhan Omar last week, where he came to testify in front of the House Foreign Relations Committee. She's on the committee. She began with an accurate and important observation, the kind of thing that you would hope any member of Congress would say. She said, you know, I fail to understand uh, why members of this committee or the American people should find any testimony that you give uh, today to be truthful. And the funny thing is that, you know, a normal person might hear that and be like, oh, I, I better be pretty careful not to lie to Congress again. Elliot Abrams was lying to her within 90 seconds. You later said that the U.S. policy in El Salvador was a fabulous achievement. Yes or no, do you still think so? From the day that President Duarte was elected in a free election to this day, El Salvador has been a democracy. That's a fabulous achievement. Now, every single word of that is false. Uh, he's talking about a Salvadoran politician named Jose Napoleon Duarte. Uh, he was elected president. I, I guess there should be air quotes around that. Elected president of El Salvador in 1984. This was not a free election. Uh, like almost all the politicians who were prominent in El Salvador, Duarte had spent time on the CIA's payroll. Duarte had been the head of a junta. He was the head of the junta during the El Mazote massacre, like during a period of time when tens of thousands of regular Salvadorans were being massacred. And the the only competition for Duarte in El Salvador in 1984 was uh, Roberto de Buisson. De Buisson personally was involved in ordering the assassination of Oscar Romero. He was the uh, Archbishop of San Salvador. He was later sainted. So in other words, Duarte's competition was a guy who had literally murdered a saint. De Buisson was going to be a PR disaster. And so they decided, you know, Duarte has to win. Uh, and he did indeed win. So the idea that this was a free election in any way is preposterous. And it just you know goes to show that, uh, I don't know, maybe with Elliot Abrams, it's kind of muscle memory. Like you put him in front of Congress and he just starts lying. As long as Elliot Abrams is alive, he will clearly continue do, doing horrible things and lying to Congress. You know, it's important to look back and realize, like, well, why is it possible for him to resurface again in his 70s, like for like this genocide comeback tour? Well, you know, the reason is that he is being protected by even more powerful people. You know, he was protected in the George H.W. Bush administration. They could not leave office without giving him a get-out-of-jail-free card, even though his punishment, like, he actually wasn't in jail, but just the idea that someone like them might suffer consequences was unconscionable. So they made sure that he did not suffer consequences. That, in turn, means that he's able to come back in the present and do what he's doing now.
That was my Intercept colleague, John Schwartz. He spoke to our producer, Jack Desidoro. Make sure to check out John's piece at TheIntercept.com. It's called Elliot Abrams, Trump's Pick to Bring Democracy to Venezuela, Has Spent His Life Crushing Democracy. Well, one of the most enduring and consistent aspects of U.S. foreign policy is, of course, hypocrisy. And that's certainly true when it comes to labeling certain leaders dictators and others freedom fighters or true Democrats. The U.S. doesn't actually want democracy unless it's a particular kind of democracy that ultimately serves Washington's interests. And the U.S. is perfectly fine with no democracy as long as the undemocratic forces do the bidding of the U.S. That is certainly the case right now in Egypt. On February 14th, Egypt's puppet parliament took steps to allow General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi to hold office beyond the expected end of his presidential term in 2022. In the eight years since the Egyptian revolution that ousted the nearly 30-year reign of Hosni Mubarak, the country has slid back under authoritarian rule. Following protests against the democratically elected president, Mohamed Morsi, Sisi led a military coup to oust the Muslim Brotherhood leader in 2013. Since coming to power, Sisi has presided over an unprecedented crackdown against, well, any hint of criticism and dissent. Egypt has imprisoned more than 60,000 political activists, according to Human Rights Watch. On a 60 Minutes interview here in the United States that, by the way, the Egyptian government fought to try to stop from being broadcast after it was recorded, General Sisi shamelessly denied that his regime imprisons people based on their politics. We don't have political prisoners, nor prisoners of opinion. We are trying to stand against extremists who impose their ideology on the people. Now they are subject to a fair trial, and it may take years, but we have to follow the law. Despite growing human rights concerns about General Sisi, The country's relationship to Washington remains stronger than ever. Egypt is, as it has long been, the second largest recipient of U.S. military aid. And Donald Trump, he loves Sisi. He calls him a fantastic guy. He met him in 2016, and then he met again with Sisi this past September, and Trump had nothing but praise for the Egyptian strongman. It's a great honor to be with President al-Sisi, a friend, a great friend of Egypt. And we have a very special... Things happening, our relationship has never been stronger. Well, to discuss how politics have taken shape since the 2011 revolution in Egypt and how journalists and activists continue to risk their lives to keep the spirit of that revolution alive, I'm joined by Sharif abdel Kadus. He's a member of the media collective Mosrin, which created a publicly accessible database of hundreds of hours of footage from the Egyptian revolution. It's called 858 Archive. An independent journalist who reports for Democracy Now! and Al Jazeera, Sharif is based in Cairo. He's reported from Egypt, Syria, Libya, Yemen, Gaza, Algeria, and elsewhere. Sharif abdel Kadus, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you for having me. So on February 5th, the Egyptian opposition, or what's being called the opposition movement, launched a challenge to constitutional amendments that could allow President Abdel Fattah uh, al-Sisi to remain as president until 2034. First, explain what is happening legislatively there to try to amend the Constitution, who's behind it, and what it would essentially result in. 
Sure. This has been a long brewing project that many people have been talking about in the pro-state media, uh, kind of floating balloons about talking about the need to keep Sisi in power, to complete uh, all his projects, to protect against Islamists getting in power. So Madamas, which is Egypt's really only independent media outlet, um, reported that there's been meetings held on a nearly daily basis at the General Intelligence Services in Mukhabarat between intelligence officials, the president's office, and headed by Sisi's son to put this project into place. Mubarak's sons weren't available? <laughs> no, they're actually seen as a threat by this regime. But um, the Support Egypt Coalition, which is a pro-state coalition in parliament, submitted these amendments. The main thrust of these amendments is to extend. So right now there's two four-year presidential terms, uh, and that's the maximum. These would extend the terms to six years, but allow Sisi to run for them after his current term is up. So he was supposed to be out in 2022. This would keep him in till 2034. So, And he was first elected 2014. So he'd be in power for 20 years. It also shores up presidential powers, gives him uh, more authority over the judiciary. And it also gives the military for the first time a constitutionally defined role to quote unquote, protect the constitution and democracy. It's unclear what that actually means. You know, this is something which could be a catalyst for opposition in Egypt. Politics has basically been completely decimated. Any and all voices of opposition and dissent are often jailed or intimidated. Many have been forced into exile. But already we've seen um, a coalition of some uh, parliamentarians uh, coming together to oppose this. We've seen 11 opposition parties come together. Earlier in January, when this talk was really kind of increasing, a thousand public figures and journalists and writers signed a petition uh, against this. Although I imagine that any people organizing or advocating for no votes uh, would face repercussions, including prison. Describe what this government in Egypt has done with people who were leaders of the uprising against Mubarak and people who have led protests against anti-democratic moves by the CC government. I mean, whenever I talk about Egypt, there's always, I use the word unprecedented now many times, but there's an unprecedented crackdown against kind of any voices of opposition and even against people who don't say anything. Uh, we saw the, the crackdown initially come down and the hardest against the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, Islamist supporters. Uh, but that has extended far beyond that. All the icons of the revolution, people like Al Abdul Fattah and uh, Ahmed Meher and all these people have been jailed, uh, received years long sentences. But it's extended to artists, to writers, to satirists, to the LGBT community. People who even haven't spoken out in years get what we call the dawn visitors. They come to your house very late at night, take you, usually don't know where. Their family don't know their whereabouts for a few days, sometimes weeks. Then you end up being thrust in a case, usually with these catch-all charges of joining an outlawed group, which basically means the Brotherhood, usually very far people who are, have no connection to the Brotherhood whatsoever. And usually publishing false news is, is part of the charges. Many people are held in what's called remand detention, which is pre-trial detention. Under the Egyptian penal code, you're allowed to be held for two years uh, without being convicted of a crime, although they've kept people longer than that in remand detention, most notably Shauken, who was a photojournalist arrested during um, the Rabah massacre in August of 2013. He's been held for five years in prison. He was convicted 
and sentenced to five years, so time already served, and yet he's still in prison because prosecutors used some archaic law saying that he owed, and everyone, there's hundreds of people in this case, that they owed money for the damage caused during the Rabah dispersal. Shoukan was arrested along with two other non-Egyptian journalists who were later released while he was taking pictures during the post-coup unrest in Egypt's Rabah Square in 2013. He was among hundreds of people detained when Egyptian security forces were ordered by General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, now the president, to end the six-week sit-in. Almost 1,000 people died in the violence that followed. It's hard to describe what it's like. Every few days something happens. Just in the past few days, um, a journalist returning from Tunisia, he was there continuing his journalism studies, was arrested at the airport. We still don't know where he is. This is a man who spent already a year and a half in prison, went on hunger strike, uh, and finally got out a couple of years ago, and now he's been arrested again. Uh, a bunch of people who belonging to the Karama party, a Nasserist party, held on the 25th of January uh, an event to commemorate the revolution. A number of them have been arrested. More than 50 people, yeah? Yeah. Um, I mean, the New York Times said that it was 54 people accused plotting uh, uprisings on the anniversary of the Egyptian revolution. Yeah, I mean, this this kind of happens in this drumbeat way, um, you know, and, and Sisi's constantly being uh, lauded as uh, a secular alternative to what the Muslim Brotherhood was. And we've seen an unprecedented crackdown against Christians. We've seen an unprecedented cr crackdown against the gay community. Every day there's something like this. There's a rights lawyer, Mohammed Ramadan, in Alexandria, who in solidarity with protesters in France posted a photo of himself wearing a yellow vest in solidarity with the yellow vest movement in France. He's been arrested. It's hard to resist because we celebrate now when someone gets out of prison for being behind bars unjustly. That's a reason to be happy. There's also, and I've, I've heard you talk about this before, but there's also another way of severely restricting the freedom of people, even if they technically are not in prison, where they have to go and report to police precincts. Explain that dimension of this. Even if a, a dissident or someone is allowed out, technically out of prison, they're not really free. Explain what happens there. Right. So people often get convicted to a couple of years in prison, but then they have an equivalent sentence on probation. What that involves is it's up to the head of the police station that where your residency is. So just your local like neighborhood right. police? And he has, the, the head of that station has uh, the authority to either make you come in a couple of times a week to sign in, or what we've been seeing recently, and this happened with Ahmed Meher, who was a founder of the April 6th Youth Movement, he completed three years in prison and had three years probation. He's forced to go every single day to the police station at sunset, and he spends the night and is only allowed out at sunrise. So he has another three years of this. This is imprisonment. This is detention. And probably one of the most famous uh, and revolutionary figures, Al Abdel Fattah, is finally completing his five years in prison. Uh, we failed to get him out before the five years. He's supposed to be out in March. He has five years of probation. So can you imagine that he would have to spend every night for five years in a police station? And this is something that's not even talked about that much. It doesn't happen to everyone that they have to spend the night every day, but certainly people are made to go sign in very often and they can make you spend the night whenever. Mm. Last month was the anniversary of the January uprising against Hosni Mubarak that kicked off in 2011. Mohamed Morsi uh, was elected president. 
it felt like it lasted just some minutes. And then he was locked up. He still remains in in prison, in all likelihood will die in, in prison. How did this happen, Sharif? I mean, I realize I'm asking you some massive question, but like yeah. the entire world was captivated watching the events unfolding in Egypt. You had this longtime dictator, Hosni Mubarak, and it seemed as though Egyptians had brought down that regime, that elections were held where someone who was not Mubarak or one of his henchmen won. What happened? January 25th, 2011, something happened in Egypt which reverberated around the world uh, and I think had an effect across the globe and for people across the globe. For me personally, it was a transformative moment when order is swept away and you're able to imagine building a new one, a new kind of world. There is an incredible level of community and solidarity and nobility in what was happening. Uh, And that feeling hasn't gone away, I think, for many people. They still remember it. And that's why they don't regret the revolution, despite the severe repercussions we've had since then. Morsi was elected. uh, The Muslim Brotherhood had a very powerful political machine. Uh, They'd been contesting elections since the early 80s, and uh, they won fair and square. The Supreme Presidential Elections Commission just announced that the Muslim Brotherhood's candidate, Dr. Mohamed Morsi, will become the next president of Egypt. He has outnumbered his rival candidate, Dr. Ahmed Shafi, the former prime minister, and that's why people here behind me are celebrating. It was a long Morsi was in power for exactly a year. During that time, the Muslim Brotherhood acted in majoritarian ways. They used very divisive sectarian language to further their political goals. Uh, They encouraged violence against protesters uh, by the police against them. Uh, They denied accusations of torture by police on protesters against them. So uh, their values um, did not match at all what I would say were, were the revolution's values. You know, this is a hierarchical, patriarchal, secretive organization. And those are completely antithetical to the values of the revolution and somehow similar to the military in many ways. Protests began against them. Morsi issued what became a fateful constitutional declaration, which gave him essentially powers above the judiciary and that he couldn't be challenged. This sparked kind of a wave of protests against him. It brought together different groups which had conflicting ideologies and grievances. So you had revolutionaries and so-called liberal parties against them and labor unions and trade syndicates. But you also had the police and the army and the old political and economic elite against him. And the military and police very successfully rode this wave of protests back into power. And we saw a very frightening... I would almost call it a fascistic moment where there was this hyper-nationalism, this chauvinism that overtook the country, which was extremely frightening to see. For Americans, I think you can think about post 9-11 and what that atmosphere was like. This was that on steroids. And it led to one of the biggest state-led massacres uh, globally, the Rabah massacre on August 14, 2013. More than a 1,000 people were likely killed on August 14, 2013. That's according to Human Rights Watch. No one from the Egyptian security forces has ever been charged with any offences relating to the Rabah massacre. I was there that day. As a reporter in the Middle East, I've seen many dead bodies of the last few years covering conflict in Gaza and Syria and Libya and Yemen. 
uh, I can easily say that was the bloodiest day that I've ever witnessed. Mm. The Egyptian army, it owns a lot of property in Egypt, and it owns a lot of the land where natural resources are. I mean, the, the military is, in in many ways, exists on its own regardless of who is in power, right? I mean, the military has this entrenched power where they own land, they control access in and out of the country, uh, movement within the country. I mean, it's not like the U.S. military with no. with bases. I mean, just explain for people how the Egyptian military functions, because it's not just about uh, a force to protect the, the homeland. There, it's, it's also its own corporation. I mean, ever since 1952, when uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser and the free officers overthrew the monarchy the, and the British in Egypt, what's called the 52 Revolution, the military has been the backbone of autocracy in, in Egypt. From Cairo come these first authentic pictures of the bloodless coup by which the army took over control of Egypt. It was the end of the king's attempt to maintain power. Troops in the street were the first indication of the change to most people, until with a broadcasting station seized, it was announced that General Naguib, the commander-in-chief whom Farouk refused as war minister, had taken control. They are now what you can call a state within the state, although they're more and more becoming the state itself. Uh, they have uh, their own economy. Uh, they have businesses and factories that sell everything from fertilizer to baby formula. Uh, they're the biggest owner of land in Egypt. Uh, they run these massive conglomerates and enterprises which are untaxed and unaudited and have a labor force of conscripts that work for them. Uh, they're so entrenched into the state itself. Former army generals are often will be governors of different provinces. You'll find them being the head of some, you know, the Suez Canal Authority. I don't know that there's another country which has that much infiltration of the military in all aspects of government. They're completely entrenched into every aspect of uh, the Egyptian state. Mm. You know, of course, the biggest recipient of U.S. support in the Middle East is Israel, but Egypt is in second place almost always. Yeah. Let's back up many, many decades. What was the original intent of the U.S. pouring so much military aid into Egypt? Well, this came out of the 1979 peace treaty with Israel that was brokered by President Carter. During the past 30 years, Israel and Egypt have waged war. But for the past 16 months, these same two great nations have waged peace. I mean, Egypt now accounts for a quarter of all U.S. military funding in the world uh, and has continued that funding throughout. We've seen that funding in recent years become increasingly conditions. A law was passed in 2012 where the State Department now has to certify that Egypt or any country is moving towards human rights and rule of law and, and sort of these things. And if you read actually the State Department's own reports they say that Egypt practices arbitrary detention, arbitrary killings, torture. And yet, time and again, we see the Secretary of State issue what's called a national security waiver to override those concerns and continue the funding. It was all smiles and handshakes at the State Department as Secretary Mike Pompeo greeted his Egyptian counterpart. Foreign Minister Sameh Shukri came out later telling reporters that cooperation between the two countries is great and welcoming the administration's decision to release military aid that had been held up over human rights concerns. So Egypt, for many years, 
many decades was the main ally, the main U.S. ally after Israel in the region. Its importance has waned, I would say, in the past eight years. You really see the rise of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates as more powerful and Egypt losing significance. People say that might affect its funding because it's not as important anymore in that in that sense. Mm. Is there any credible or strong enough opposition that could, in your view, mount any kind of a challenge to Sisi remaining as head of state? I mean, given the fact that tens of thousands of people who have been locked up, including many of the most articulate, brave fighters from the original revolution, I mean... Is there any chance of bringing Sisi down or confronting him either at the ballot box or in mass protest again? Well, I think we have to consider the ballot box is not it's not a fair system. Right. There is no real. No, I mean, Sisi was reelected last year after either jailing, intimidating or forcing any uh, candidate from running. The only person who did run against him was, you know, one of the main people calling for his reelection was his opponent. Wait, 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 what? <laughs> so no one, after they forced yeah. everyone out, they needed someone. Otherwise, right. it would just be a referendum. So the guy who's the head of this other, this party, I mean, if you looked at his Facebook page, it had a big banner of CC saying, you know, calling for his reelection. And he became somehow the last minute candidate that ran against him. Sounds legit. Yeah. So I think, yeah, the ballot box uh, is, not a, right. is not viable. Uh, in terms of contentious politics and protest... I would sadly say that anytime soon, no. Uh, There has been such a fierce crackdown and repression on people. Many people have been forced into exile. Many are in prison. You risk so much if you try anything right now. And, you know, these things come in waves. And unfortunately, we're seeing a wave of anti-revolutionary fervor, not just in Egypt and the Middle East, but across the world. There seems to be after... Post-Cold War and post-2008 financial crisis, the world is reorganizing in in different ways. And right now there is this right-wing wave, it seems. And in Egypt right now, I don't see any... I'm always hopeful for the future, but I don't know that there could be any change soon. Despite the fact that journalists have been regularly targeted, imprisoned, forced into exile, there remains in Egypt a small but dedicated group of independent journalists who are committed to continuing to report on this repression, but also to ensuring that the videotaped history of the revolution and the aftermath remains alive and accessible for people around the world. So talk about that effort to preserve that history and also to continue reporting on these issues despite all of the risks. I was part of a media collective called Mosurin uh, during the revolution that did a lot of documentation of protest and dissent uh, and interviewing, getting testimony from people who were arrested and so forth. After 2013, 2014, basically had to give up our space because the danger was very high. But there was terabytes of footage that we felt didn't belong to us, but should be part of collective memory that is very systematically trying to be erased by the regime. You can check it out right now. It's called 858.ma. It's online. It's got, when we put it up, 858 hours of footage 
that is indexed and timestamped. And you can see by location different kinds of protests, everything from labor strikes to protests against the police and, and so forth. If you think of your own memory as, as your private literature, this was a public library for, for people to be able to access and to remember. It, it is a very difficult time now because there is there was a draconian media law that was passed in September uh, where we have now a Supreme Media Regulatory Council that oversees all media, but it's overseeing websites as well. And it's an unprecedented crackdown on press freedom. Egypt's the third worst jailer of journalists in the world, just behind Turkey and China. And there's also a new way, instead of just censorship and control of the media, of the TVs and newspapers, the Mukhabarat, the general intelligence services, are acquiring direct control of newspapers and TV outlets through a, a private equity fund called Eagle Capital. And so they're buying up and gaining direct ownership of uh, these outlets. There really is no space whatsoever for any kind of dissent whatsoever. Mm. Well, Sharif, thank you so much for all the work that you've done in many countries, but in this case, particularly in Egypt. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Sharif abdel Kadus is an independent journalist based in Cairo. In 2012, Sharif was awarded the fourth annual Izzy Award for Outstanding Achievement in Independent Media, and that was for his coverage of the Egyptian Revolution. You can find him on Twitter at Sharif Kadus. And to check out hundreds of hours of footage captured in Egypt during the revolution, visit 858.ma. And that does it for this week's show. If you are not yet a sustaining member of Intercepted, you can log on to theintercept.com slash join. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack Desidoro, and our executive producer is Lital Malad. Laura Flynn is associate producer. Elise Swain is our assistant producer and graphic designer. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Transcription is done by Nuria Marquez-Martinez. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.